Get in touch with technology with Tech Stuff from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. My name is Jonathan Strickland. I happen to be the host of this show. I'm also an executive producer at HowStuffWorks, and hey, (laughs) I love all things tech. And today we're doing a little listener mail request. Dan wrote in and asked if I might do an episode about Apple's so-called neural engine in its more recent iPhones. So today we are going to learn what a neural engine is and what it does. And if you guys, by the way, have any requests for topics, you've always thought, hey, I want to have an episode about this particular tech topic, remember, you can send those to me by sending an email to techstuff at howstuffworks.com. And now, let's talk about this neural engine. Well, the general public first heard about this topic uh, back in September 2017 when Apple CEO Tim Cook presented at what has become an annual tradition for Apple at around that time of year. Pretty much every September is when Apple will come out and unveil the latest in its line of iPhone smartphones. And in 2017, that would have been the iconic iPhone X, the 10th anniversary edition of the iPhone, also the one that's been discontinued now. Cook listed off a lot of features when he went to that presentation, but the one we're really interested in today is part of the phone's A11 microprocessor, also called the A11 Bionic CPU. The most recent iPhones, as of the recording of this podcast, now have the next generation of that chip, the A12. But in both cases, the neural engine is one of the elements that gets a lot of coverage. So, Let's go to the A11 since that was the first one to have it. It's more than just a CPU. It's technically a system on a chip, or SOAC. It's an ARM 64-bit chip, but that doesn't really tell you anything if you're not, you know, deep into the world of microprocessors. So what does that actually mean? Well, the ARM-based part means that it's it's based on the ARM microarchitecture in chip design. So for our purposes, we can simplify this to say the chip's components, the stuff that's actually on the microprocessor, are laid out in a way that was developed by ARM Holdings. That's the company behind ARM processors. Now, that is different from the layout you would find in a chip that was made by Intel, for example. So the architecture part literally refers to the layout of components in the microprocessor and how they interact with each other. And generally speaking, companies that make microprocessors develop an architecture. They uh, do so in a way that is supposed to maximize the efficiency of the chip so that you get the most power for the least amount of energy input you can, with the least amount of waste, really, is the best way of putting it. You don't want to waste too much and, and produce too much heat. And then you typically would then reduce the size of the various components. And then after you reduce the size of the components, you might figure out a new architecture that makes better use of these smaller components. And this process goes on and on. Intel calls this the tick-tock methodology. And so that's what the ARM-based part means. It's from this particular company following this particular layout. As for that 64-bit part, what does that mean? Well, that refers to the data width of the arithmetic logic unit, or ALU. 
This is the part of the processor that actually carries out those operations on data uh, from computer instructions. So data width essentially tells you how much information the ALU can accept or handle at a given time. And it tells us this in bits. Now, a bit, just to remind you, is a single unit of computational information, and it is binary, meaning it has two states, which we designate as being either a zero or a one. Some people say off and on or false and true, but it's zero and one. The number of bits tells you how big these uh, actual numbers can get before the ALU can't handle them anymore. So let's say you have an 8-bit chip, because that's a lot easier to talk about. Uh, you would be able to add, subtract, multiply, divide, you know, the basic arithmetic log logical uh, operations to 8-bit numbers with an 8-bit chip. Now, a single bit is a 0 or a 1. An 8-bit number you can represent as a string of 8 uh, eight numbers, either zeros or ones. So you could have eight zeros in a row up to eight ones in a row and everything in between. So it could be seven zeros and then a one, or it could be six zeros and then a one and then another zero. You get the point. With that many combinations, that means you would be able to go from the typical numbers of zero to 255. That's with eight bit. However, we're not talking eight bit. We're talking about a 64-bit chip. So now you have 64 digits in a row that can be either a zero or one. That provides you a lot more combinations, which means you could range in number from zero to nine quintillion, 223 quadrillion, 372 trillion, 36 billion, 854 million, 775,807. So that's a pretty big range. It can handle way, way larger numbers than an 8-bit chip. So that tells you the type of architecture this chip has and the amount of data it can handle at a time. The A11 has six cores, so processors with multiple cores can work on parts of a problem simultaneously. If you have something that's called a parallel problem, you can divide that problem up into different segments and have different cores tackle it. Two of those six cores are what Apple calls high-performance cores. They have a clock speed of 2.39 gigahertz. Uh, in the A11. So the clock speed tells you how many clock cycles a CPU can perform per second. 2.39 gigahertz means that these cores can each perform 2.39 billion clock cycles per second. Now, clock cycles do not easily translate over into actions. It's not necessarily one clock cycle per action. But generally, these numbers tell you how much a core uh, of the processor is able to handle per second, how many tasks it can do per second, assuming a certain number of clock cycles per task. Now, these two cores are referred to as monsoon. The other four cores are what Apple refers to as energy-efficient cores. They are not at that same high clock speed. They are meant to handle more routine tasks. They are called mistral. 
So you have monsoon and mistral, uh, two monsoon cores, four mistral cores. But the A11 is not just a CPU. It also has a three-core graphics processing unit, or GPU, incorporated into this chip. And then there are the two processing cores dedicated specifically to handling tasks related to machine learning algorithms. This pair of processors are the neural engine. They are essentially an artificial neural network. And I've talked a little bit about artificial neural networks before, but we're really going to try and get an understanding of what makes them special today. Because that's really why neural engine means anything in the first place. So this means we get to do a quick history lesson, because this is tech stuff, and of course we have to go into the history. So here we go. Back in the 1940s and the 1950s, there were some smart guys named uh, Warren McCullough, who was a neurophysiologist, and another guy named Walter Pitts, who was a computer scientist and a logician. And they began developing theories that brought together computational science and neuroscience. In other words, the way machines process information and the way brains process information, which is different. McCullough wrote a couple of papers about this, and he asserted that the basic unit of logic in the brain is the neuron. So the nerve cell, the, the brain cell, is your, your basic unit of logic in a brain. So it would act kind of like a gate or a transistor in a circuit. And so you might have a transistor being the smallest uh, unit, not, not metric of logic, but the smallest unit to allow this to happen in a circuit, neurons in the brain. Pitts and McCullough began developing computer algorithms that attempted to guide machines to process information in a way that was at least conceptually similar to the way our brains process information. McCullough had proposed that by doing this, you could train a machine to recognize handwritten characters like numbers or letters, even if those representations varied in size or style. And I've talked about this being a challenge in the past as well, that Training a computer to recognize a specific type of image or a specific thing in an image is challenging. So I always use coffee mugs as an example. I don't know why, but I like that, that particular one, so we're going to go with it again. If you were to create a computer program where you feed an image of a coffee mug to the computer program and you tell the computer program this image corresponds with this concept called coffee mug. And the image shows a blue coffee mug and its handle is pointed toward the right of the perspective of the viewer. And then you were to feed a different image, maybe of that same coffee mug, but now at a different angle. Well, the machine is looking at this as if it's a totally new thing. It cannot just... Uh, extricate that information and say, oh, this is also a coffee mug. Or maybe it's a different coffee mug. It's a different color or a different size or a different shape. The computer doesn't understand the concept of coffee mug. So how can you teach it this concept? How can you train it so it recognizes coffee mugs? That was what McCullough was looking at. Then you have another guy who came along, Frank Rosenblatt, very smart man, who built on this work. He developed an artificial neuron called the perceptron. Now, a perceptron's job is, from a very high level, pretty simple. It accepts multiple binary inputs. So it accepts inputs that are either zeros or ones. 
and then it produces a single binary output, either a zero or a one, based upon uh, processing that information. So let's say you want to create a program that can help you decide which restaurant you want to go to. And you've come up with three criteria that you think are really important in order for you to make this decision. And the three criteria you have are, uh, is the restaurant within a 20-minute drive or less? So is it relatively close? Will a meal cost less than $50 for two people to have dinner there? And does the restaurant serve tacos? Those are your three points of criteria. And you can represent each of those variables with a binary figure. So for example, you could say that if the restaurant is closer than a 20-minute drive, if it is nearby, you represent that variable with a one. If it is further away than that, it's a zero. If the dinner for two is cheaper than $50, that's a one. If it's more expensive, it's a zero. And if it serves tacos, it's a one. And if it does not serve tacos, it's a big fat zero. Then you have a list of various restaurants. You could feed each restaurant through your criteria and see how they do. Uh, and then you could narrow your choices this way. And perhaps there is no single restaurant that meets all those criteria, so you really should take another step. And that's where Rosenblatt introduces the concept of weights, where you, you change how important each of the criteria are in relation to each other. Weights are real numbers that indicate the importance of particular criterion. So you want, uh, let's say all those three criteria you've identified, the distance, the cost, and whether or not they have tacos. You have decided the most critical piece of information is whether or not the restaurant serves tacos. So you could then assign a greater weight to that criterion, saying, this is more important to me. And that will influence the output of the neuron. You must also determine a threshold value for the decision. In other words, you say, in order to produce a positive result to tell me, yes, this is a restaurant you should go to, you must at least meet this threshold. That's the minimum value the calculation has to meet or exceed in order to produce a go-to-this-restaurant result. I'll explain a bit more about this in just a second, but first, I'm going to take a quick break and thank our sponsors. That threshold value that I mentioned before the break is really important because it tells your model what sort of results count as valid versus not valid. So let's say I've weighted the criteria so that the distance to the restaurant and the expense of the meal each have a weight of two. But the presence of tacos is a six. That's how important I think tacos are. And I've set a threshold of four. Well, that means that if the restaurant is relatively close and it's relatively inexpensive, it's going to pass my criteria because I've given a weight of two for both of those. And added together, that's four. It equals the threshold, good to go. But even if the restaurant is far away, and even if it's expensive, if it serves tacos, it still passes my criteria because I gave the tacos a weight of six. Raising the threshold value reduces the number of valid restaurants. So if I make the threshold eight instead of four, now the only way I can get a valid result, a result of, yes, go to this restaurant, is if the restaurant has tacos and it's either close by or it's inexpensive or both. And if I said the threshold were 10, 
all three criteria would need to be met for this option to be valid. Now, in artificial intelligence, for the purposes of notation, many people will move the threshold value to the other side of the equation. And in this case, we now call it a bias. And a bias essentially is a measurement to tell you how easy or difficult it is to get the perceptron to fire off a positive value. If you have a big positive bias, that means it's easier for the perceptron to produce a positive result, a one. A large negative bias does the opposite, and thus you would get a zero. So we can write out the perceptron's rules like this. Take the value of a variable, which is either going to be a zero or a one. It will be binary. You multiply the value of this variable by the weight of that variable. And weights can be different uh, uh, values. Let's say that uh, the distance and expense are both weighted at two. Tacos gets a big hefty six. You're going to add your various uh, weighted variable results together, and then you add the bias for the perceptron. And in our example, the bias is a minus six. Uh, that's to tell us that uh, in order for this perceptron to fire, you have to, you have to be able to factor in that minus six and beat it. So if after adding these elements together, you get a result that is zero or lower, the output is a zero or a negative, saying don't go to this restaurant. So after adding that negative six, if you have a zero or less, you don't go. If you get a result that's greater than zero, it's a positive result. It says go to that restaurant. So here in our hypothetical perceptron, we've decided on a bias of minus six, and we take our three variables as we examine a single restaurant. So this restaurant is 25 minutes away. So that means for our first variable, which is all about distance, it gets a zero because it is further than 20 minutes away. So that variable is a zero, and we multiply the variable times the weight. The weight is two for that particular variable. Two times zero is zero. Then I look and I see that dinner for two at that restaurant is going to set me back $30. But that's below the limit we had set of $50. So that means the value of the variable is one. It is cheaper than $50, so that gets a one. The weight for this variable is two. So multiply the weight times the variable, two times one is two. Then we have the question, does the restaurant serve tacos? And I know you're dying to know this. I'm glad to report the restaurant does in fact serve tacos. And that means that the variable is a one, it's positive. And we weighted this variable very heavily with a six. So six times one is six. Now we have to add all of those results together. So we have zero from the first one, two from the second one, six from the third one. Add that together, you get eight. Now we have to add in the bias. And the bias for this perceptron is a minus six. Eight plus minus six gives us a final value of two. Two is greater than zero. So by the rules we have established, the perceptron says this is a positive result and fires off a one. So the restaurant we fed to the perceptron met the criteria based on that bias. Now, if our bias had been minus 10 or minus 9, we would have not produced this positive result. We would have gotten a, a zero or negative number, and it would have said no. So that bias is very important, as is the weight of the various variables. And that is one neuron. Now, you can actually create layers of neurons. That's why we call it an artificial neural network, not just an artificial neuron. And by doing that, 
You can have results from one neuron's decisions feed directly into another neuron. Also, a perceptron can perform as a type of logical gate called a NAND gate, N-A-N-D. That stands for not and. It's a type of logical gate that can produce a false or negative output if all its inputs are true or positive. So in other words, with the right weights and biases, a perceptron will produce an output of zero if all of its inputs are ones. The NAND gate in computer science is a universal gate because you can use different creations and combinations of NAND gates and build any kind of computation. You just have to link them together properly in order to do it. It's not always the most efficient way to do this, but it does work. So if you had perceptrons that accepted two variables, each with a weight of minus two, and the perceptron had a bias of three, it would act like a NAND gate. That's because if both variables are one, then the final equation you'd get to determine the output would be minus two, because you multiply the weight of minus two times the variable of one, and then you have to add a second minus two, because the second variable is the same way. And then you would add the bias, which is three. But minus two plus minus two is minus four. You add in plus three, you get a minus one as the result. Minus one is less than zero, which means the output for the perceptron must be zero as opposed to one. You get a false or an off or a zero result. Two positive inputs create a negative output. One of the few times you can say two positives make a negative. Now that means we can ask progressively more complicated questions with each perceptron handling one aspect of that question and feeding into another layer of perceptrons. Each perceptron will produce either a positive or a negative result, so you either get a one or a zero, and these results will feed into other neurons in the network, which will use them to perform their own calculations with their own weights and their own biases. All of this is to feed those questions through a network to produce a result. And I should be clear, the weights for each variable along this path can change from one part of the decision-making process to the next. We're not just talking about identical perceptrons all through the network. And that last bit is the most important part because if this were just a matter of setting biases and weights and building out a network of perceptrons, there'd be nothing special about it because we already have NAND gates. They existed before perceptrons. It would just mean that we have a different way to implement something we could already do. And finding a new way to do something you were already doing is rarely super transformative. You might be able to make it a better way of doing the same thing, but in this case, it might be less efficient than the old way. However, there is something else that makes these perceptrons special, and that's by pairing them with those special algorithms that McCullough and Pitts were proposing back in the 40s and 50s. These would be learning algorithms. These algorithms are instructions that can, based upon external stimuli, dynamically and automatically tune the weights and biases of perceptrons in a neural network. In other words, a program can guide the network so that it learns how to solve problems. But how? Well, it all comes down to making small changes in those weights and biases in order to fine-tune outputs. So let's say we're working on an image recognition algorithm. That's one of the big things that the neural engine in Apple's iPhones 
do. They, that's one of their main purposes. So in our example, let's say we're training the neural network to recognize handwritten, printed, lowercase letters. It's very similar to what McCullough was talking about. But let's say our model is having trouble differentiating a lowercase l with a lowercase i. It was, it's just having issues being able to tell those two apart in particular. Now, we've got a specific example in which our model is misidentifying an L as an I, let's say, in this hypothetical situation. And so we decide we're going to make some minor tweaks in the weights and biases earlier on in the artificial neural network to guide our network so that it can more readily tell the difference between L, lowercase l's and lowercase i's. And we get our model closer to being able to tell that difference. We keep making these small adjustments until we get more consistent output. The network as a whole is said to, quote-unquote, learn through this process. It's getting better and creating an output that is more reflective of reality. But there's a bit of a problem. And anyone who has worked in QA has probably already spotted what it is. For everybody else, I'm going to explain it in just a minute. But first, let's take another quick break to thank our sponsor. So what was that problem I was talking about before the break? Well, if you've ever worked in any sort of programming environment, you know that when you introduce changes in code, you might fix whatever problem you're focusing on at the moment, but you might also break something else that's already in the code. With perceptrons, that happens when you start tweaking weights and biases. Because a small change in one spot in a network can have sort of a ripple effect with unintended consequences. So, for example, in our little hypothetical situation, maybe your new model can better tell the difference between a lowercase l and a lowercase i. But now the lowercase j is giving it problems. The way perceptrons work, small changes in the network can produce much larger variations in output. So it's sort of like the butterfly effect in action. Computer scientists created a different type of artificial neuron network that addresses this problem, and this type is called a sigmoid neuron. Really, I should say they created a different type of artificial neuron. So the sigmoid neuron, what the heck is this? Well, from a high level, sigmoid neurons look kind of like perceptrons, but while you'd use either a zero or a one as the value for an input into a perceptron, a sigmoid neuron can accept a zero a 1, or any number in between 0 and 1. The output a sigmoid neuron produces is called the logistic function, or sigmoid function. This gets a bit complicated on a surface level, particularly if, like me, you're a little rusty on your algebra and calculus. But generally speaking, the end result is that using this type of artificial neuron, you can make small changes to weights and biases and not create a larger effect on the ultimate output. You'll still make small adjustments to the output. Uh, there are a lot of resources online that go into greater detail about sigmoid neurons. I'm not going to go into more detail here because without visual aids and being able to go into algebraic functions, it gets a little hard for me to explain. But in your typical neural network, you would have an input layer and you would have an output layer so you have a, a layer where information comes in, and you would have the output layer where new information comes out. But between those two, you would have what are called hidden layers. That just really means that they're not input or output. They're in the middle. 
Hidden makes it sound like they're super clandestine and spy-worthy and cool, but really they're just in-between input and output. They perform processes on the inputs they receive, and they pass them on as outputs to other neurons uh, to have more processes put on them until you finally get the output. The sort of networks I've described so far are called feed-forward networks, and that means pretty much what it sounds like. You plug in inputs... The information passes one way through the network, and you eventually get output as the information continues to move. And we typically visualize this in a left-to-right kind of, uh, uh, of display. So you imagine input coming in from the left side, passing through this network, having various processes put on it as each of these neurons uh, decides if it, it counts as a positive or a negative response or with sigmoid neurons some degree in between, and then plugging that into the next neuron until you finally get to the output. It always gets fed forward, but that's not the only type of artificial neural network. There are also things called recurrent neural networks in which neurons fire at some predetermined amount of time. Then they typically settle down. They're not firing at all. But the next group of neurons start to fire. This creates kind of a cascade effect through the network. And occasionally, there could be neurons that feed back into previous neurons. There's a feedback loop. It's more challenging to make a powerful learning algorithm with recurrent neural networks because it gets super duper complicated, but recurrent neural networks pose potentially huge utility in the future. So an artificial neural network can be made up as of as few as a, a few dozen artificial neurons, all the way up to millions of artificial neurons. And we train them through various processes, such as backpropagation. Now, that's when you take the actual output of the process and you compare it to what you wanted it to produce. And then you use the difference between those two results to make changes to the weights and biases in the network. So here's an example. We're uh, training a, our network to recognize pictures of cats because this has actually been done. Google famously did this. So you're training your network to recognize what a cat is based upon a picture. And you use a picture that you know is a picture of a cat. So you already know the answer to this. You're teaching the computer to learn the answer to this. You know that the answer is cat. And you feed the image through this system. It analyzes the data. It gives you an output. And you see how well it did. Did it correctly identify the image as a cat? Did it assign a certain level of, uh, of certainty to its conclusion? And if it's far off, you could start making changes to those weights and biases to help guide the system into determining, oh, yes, that is a cat. Training a network multiple times refines this process to the point where you can start to introduce brand new inputs to the system, inputs that the system has never encountered before, and get a reliable result. So with Google's example, you might feed it thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or more images of cats. And each time the system is told, no, that there is a cat in this image, and it begins to refine its approach figuring out which weights and biases it needs to tweak in order to get to that result. And then you feed it a whole group of new images, and you don't tell it if there are cats in those images or not. And you leave it to the system to determine, are there cats in these pictures? And if you have trained it properly, if those weights and biases are actually 
well-tweaked, then the system should be able to reliably pick out the pictures that have cats in them. That's the idea. Now, there's tons more to be said about artificial neural networks, but I'll give you uh, a, I've given a quick overview. Let's, let's jump back over to Apple for a second because that was the whole purpose of this episode. So what is a neural engine actually used for? Well, for the iPhone, it's used mainly in processing speech and image data. It's the neural engine that can analyze your face, for example, and then translate your expressions into animated form. You can create animated emoji this way. So you could use the little uh, application and create a customized surprise emoji that copies the way you look when you make a sort of an exaggerated surprise face. You could do that. The neural engine takes the incoming data, the images it's pulling from the camera, analyzes it, and then helps create an animated image that mirrors what you did. The neural engine also analyzes visual data for the purposes of augmented reality. That's when you overlay digital information on top of a view of the physical world around you. So with smartphones like the iPhone, it means holding your phone up and looking at the world through your phone's screen. So the camera on your phone is giving you a live video feed of whatever you're pointing the phone at. And then... You use an augmented reality app, and on top of that video image, your phone will overlay some sort of digital information. It could be a game. It could be information about your surroundings. The digital information can appear to be anchored to the physical space itself. So you could have an augmented reality application that lets you view a virtual piece of furniture in your house. And so when you hold up the phone, you use the app to place a virtual chair, let's say in a specific location in a room. And you can walk around this virtual chair holding your phone up. And it looks like the chair is actually there, even as your perspective changes. You can circle around it and view the chair from all the different angles as if it were actually sitting there in the room. It's anchored to its place that you've put it within the view of the room. The neural engine is analyzing all this information that's coming in from the camera and helping the app create the image of the chair, keeping it the appropriate size and orientation with respect to your viewing angle. And the neural engine can use this ability to help you go through stuff like your photos. Let's say you've got an adorable pet, like my doggy Tybalt. He is adorable. The iPhone can use its neural engine and image recognition algorithms to return pictures of your pet in response to a search query. So my wife, who has an iPhone, could do this with our dog. She could search for the word dog in her photo app, and then she would get countless images of Tybalt. And I know it works because she's done it. Apple has included access to the neural engine so that app developers can actually take advantage of that technology as well. They'll doubtlessly create new ways to leverage this tech. So we'll have to keep our eyes open to see what comes out of it. Neural networks in general are becoming increasingly important in machine learning and artificial intelligence. So it's likely to grow as a branch of computer science for the next several years. And that wraps up this episode. If you have suggestions for future episodes of Tech Stuff, maybe it's a technology, a person in tech, company, anything like that, send me an email. The address is techstuff at howstuffworks.com. You can draw me a line on Facebook or Twitter. The handle for both of those is techstuffhsw. Don't forget, we have a merchandise store over at tpublic.com slash techstuff. That's t-e-e-public.com slash techstuff. You can go and get your... Uh, your uh, CAPTCHA test, the prove you're not a robot 
sticker or t-shirt or tote bag or whatever type of thing you would like that on. It's pretty cool. So go check that out. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram. And I'll talk to you again really soon. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.